Oscar Combs here, and I want to put one rumor to rest, once and for all. The story is that Rafferty's goes all out for sports fans. And let me tell you, it's absolutely true. Confirmed. And fans love Rafferty's right back because the food is so terrific. Serve fresh. Serve fast. Serve friendly. Lunch or dinner. Rafferty's menu is jam-packed with all your favorites. Steaks, prime rib, chicken, ribs, delicious dishes and generous sizes that really satisfy the appetite. So come hang with the sports crowd at Rafferty's. It's the tastiest place in town. You've heard Oscar and I talk about the football coaches at the University of Kentucky, and eventually we're going to talk about the basketball coaches. But in this episode, we discuss the past athletic directors at the University of Kentucky. As you're going to find out, the role of the AD has changed significantly throughout the years, and each AD has a unique story on how they ended up at UK and how they departed. I'm Bo Robinson, thanking you for listening to our podcast as Oscar and I give a little history about the athletic directors of the University of Kentucky. And there's many aspects of the athletic department that tend to get overlooked, and it seems like when it gets the most attention is when you make a bad hire, am I right? Absolutely. At my tender age of almost 40 years old, as far back as I could go would be Bernie Shively, just because I know about the Bernie Shively sports complex. Other than that, I had to dig a little bit on a few of these guys. One of these guys hired Coach Rupp. Few of them did double duty as football coach and basketball coach. It's it's an interesting history when you talk about the athletic directors and it, the role. It, it is, Bo, and one of the things about it, because it doesn't play out on the field of competition, you don't see a game won or lost by an AD on the scoreboard. You don't see any big plays, man. But the uniqueness of athletic directors today versus back in the 1800s is so different. But it, it, it's got such color and uh, such a story behind it that I didn't even realize till we decided we were going to do these because we, we tend to not look beyond yesterday in anything. And like you said, we go back real quickly to Bernie's shot. But what about Bernie? Because this is going to bring up another thing, a future one for us, and it'll probably be a series of four or five. Everybody thinks that Kentucky basketball was invented by Adolph Rupp, and it wasn't. You know, very few people can remember the guy that he replaced. Rupp's first salary was $2,400 a year. The guy he replaced, Johnny Meyer, was making only half of that. And he left UK when the president refused to give him a $100 a year raise. And then he turned around and beat Rupp for a couple SEC titles. So there's that great history. But today we're talking about athletic directors. And when we delved into this, you know, I don't think either one of us had any idea a couple of stories we're going to talk about today because ADs were more like a department head. They were more like a traffic cop, maybe a person that overseed the the, uh, bills that came in or the expense account of a coach being on the road. So they would check it, yeah. He had two meals. He turned in two receipts for $1.35. He got $3 worth of cash writing the check. That basically was their function way, way back then. But to look to where some of these guys left and went to after that, and then we get into the era and the, war, the post-war eras where the AD become 
the head coach, and that was his way of getting a $500 raise. But let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to the very beginning. Uh, the first athletic director we found on record was uh, Edwin Sweetland. He was interesting because he was the first paid basketball coach at Kentucky. Yes, and he, he coached both football and basketball. And he track coached, and field. Yes, he, he coached uh, football and basketball in 1919 and 1911 and 12. He was a native of Dryden, D-R-Y-D-E-N, New York. And uh, he came here, he was the AD in 12 and 13, so it looks like he spent 9, 10, 11, 12 coaching, and then in 1912, he did three jobs, football, basketball, and AD. And you thought today's ADs had some stress on them. Yeah, <laughs> but, but now I'm not so sure how many people were going to see in all of these games in 1910 and 11. You know, right. there, there may have been 30 students and uh, two uh, managers, and that was probably it. Well, what a strange beginning. We talk about a strange beginning. Let's talk about a, I don't want to say strange, but an interesting twist on having a career in athletics where we talk about an athletic director who served under two presidents. Well, and the amazing thing with that, we're talking about John J. Tigert or I guess Tigert, 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 whatever. The fourth. John. John. Let's call him John. Uh, born in Nashville. He was the son of a Methodist Episcopal minister. He went to school at Vanderbilt along with a guy named Grantland Rice. How about that for you? And uh, so he went there. He uh, played halfback in football. Uh, he got through that in 1910. He went to Kentucky Wesleyan for a year, came to Kentucky in 1913 and coached basketball. In 1915 and 16, he coached football in 1916 and 17 he coached basketball but that whole time he was doing that he was the ad from 1913 to 1917 now if you think that was something we always talk about people at kentucky with kentucky being a launching pad who leads kentucky as a coach and betters himself you tell us what he did then he went on to serve under President Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge as a U.S. Commissioner of Education. Rightfully so, he had the resume for it. Very accomplished in the world of uh, academics to go from athletic director to moving on, becoming a U.S. Commissioner of Education. What we talked about a few weeks ago, Rich Brooks going from a head coaching job to retiring, growing tomatoes, playing golf and everything. This guy continues his career in uh, academics. Yeah, and at age 27, his first job, was he was appointed president of Kentucky Wesleyan College in Owensboro. So, I mean, you, you, you look at the resume of this guy. He was president of the University of Florida in 1928. I mean, he, he's just all over the place. So that's something I didn't know about Kentucky athletics or the University of Kentucky. And that's why we're doing this right now. Stanley, and I love the name, Stanley Daddy Bowles. <laughs> I can picture him. I've never seen a picture of him, but I uh -huh. can speak. And they say he was everybody's daddy, and that's how he got the nickname. Must have took care of everybody yes. somehow. Well, he did take care of uh, somebody, and that person was named Coach Adolph Rupp. That is right. Uh, 1917 to 1933, uh, he was the AD here. Before that, in 1917, he was a football coach. 1917-18, he was the basketball coach. Uh, and... Between 1917, 1933, that year, I think was 1930, he brought in Adolph Rupp. I would always like to know how, how did Stanley Daddy Bowles find out 
about Coach Rupp? Was it somebody kind of nudging him, saying, "Hey, well, I, I th- this guy over in Illinois who's coaching." I, th- I think that Coach Rupp just sent an application. He was looking to move up. You know, he had coached high school in Freeport, Illinois, and he sees his resume, and someone asked him why should he be the next head coach at Kentucky, and he said, "I'm the best." What's that word? J W D he would use. <laughs> coach there is, and you know what? He went on to prove it for about 42 years. The game against Kentucky Wesleyan ended in a tie. And I believe the reason it ended in a tie was um, later on, wasn't there a scoring error? Well, what it was, it didn't end in a tie. It ended with one team leading the other. Now, history books don't tell us who won or who lost the game. But later, somebody got to look in the scorebook and found out it was a tie score, not a one-point game. I've got a suspicion that it must have been Daddy Bowes that found the error and Kentucky was probably a one-point loser and turned it into a tie <laughs> game. I don't know that. And there is a reason why they called him Daddy. He took care of everybody, just everybody. like that scorebook. Chet Wynn, what do we know about Chet Wynn? Well, not a whole lot. He was from Long Island, Kansas, not New York. Football coach in 1934 to 37 at Kentucky. And from 33 to 38, he was also AD. So he apparently came here as an AD, picked up football as a coach the second year, then stayed one year as AD after he quit coaching. I don't know if he hired himself and fired himself or what, but that's an interesting chronological order there that he's first AD, then AD and coach, then AD. So guess he hired himself. After three or four years, I'm not getting the job done. I'll fire myself and stay on his AD for one more year. I wish I had that kind of power. <laughs> Bernie Shively. Now, that's the first one I could remember as far as name-wise. Bernie Shively is the first one I can go back to. Yeah, and he was probably one of the most respected ADs in all of college sports history. Was here for 38 years. That was unheard of. He stayed here. Uh, I remember near the end of his era – uh, a new president came in by, doc, by, by the name of Dr. John Oswald. Wasn't exactly a big fan of athletics, and he sort of, the word I think that was used at the time was going to de-emphasize it. So he brought it back in and put it under a department within the university. Uh, brought in a guy in by the name of Johnson. I don't recall his first name. So they put Bernie under him, and there are some people this day, some of his uh, grandchildren who say the stress from that, he ended up having a heart attack and dying. And uh, they believe to this day that that stress had something to do with it. But uh, Bernie was here many, many years. He was here with uh, uh, when Stolfield was made its big jump. And uh, a very, very likable fella. He was probably the first AD that you could call a true AD that had re- widespread responsibilities these ad's that we're going through there's definitely a line between the old old timey ad's if you will and then the ones i guess we could call bernie shively more modern era ad just as far as time wise of since you've been alive since i've been alive probably when he was hired he wasn't but he grew in in that era Mm -hmm. and he was as i said very very well respected uh he was very very involved in football uh he hired Bear Bryant 
which was really vital at that time. And we'll get into some of these hirings and uh, resignations and such here in a little bit as we move on, Oscar. Harry Lancaster came after Bernie Shively. Yeah, he was sort of uh, pushed into that as a result of uh, Bernie having a fatal heart attack and passing away. They weren't expecting to replace him. He was in his 60s when he died. And uh, Harry had been the right-hand man of Adolph Rupp for two decades plus. And I think that probably Coach Rupp was looking at what was happening on the other side of the campus. Probably said, well, you know, maybe if Harry gets it. And that had some mixed reaction because he thought if Harry got the head job, then, hey, I'm going to be in good shape here. You know, he's been on myself. Well, when Harry got to be AD, it was a different role. I mean, he was responsible. And he and Adolph didn't always see eye to eye, and Adolph could not understand how he could not endorse just anything he wanted. But now Harry was AD of all athletics, not just basketball. And so there were some bitter feelings there, and they had a breakup that lasted beyond Coach Rupp's retirement. In fact, Harry was the one, as an extension of the president, that had to make the decision that Coach Rupp had to step down. And it was um, pretty much on Coach Rupp's deathbed when the two of those finally made up and uh, embraced each other and let bygones be bygones. Any other decisions that you could recall uh, outside of forcing Rupp into retirement that Coach Rupp and Lancaster didn't see eye to eye on? Anything specific? No, not that I recall. I'm sure there were some little things. The, the other big thing with Harry that's important is that uh, Commonwealth Stadium was built under his watch. And that was the first major construction for athletics, you know, since the Memorial Coliseum, mm-hmm. which was in 50-51. Well, and I'm looking, Bernie Shively, what was his hand in, if we go back, well, what was his hand go, in the Memorial his, Coliseum? It was a Memorial Coliseum, going from alumni to Memorial. And trust me, going from Memorial, I mean, from alumni to Memorial was even bigger than going from Memorial to Rupp Arena. I mean, alumni seated three, 4,000 people. It, it fluctuated at times. It was about five, then it got down to 2,000 back and forth. But that was officially designated the white elephant when it was built. And Memorial Coliseum was named in memory of all the veterans who gave their lives in the previous wars involving Kentuckians. What happened to Lancaster? Harry, Harry had diabetes and... Uh, very severely, and that made him retire in, in the middle of everything, which was, I think, 1975. Health issues got him. And uh, I think the Coach Rupp passing away at, his, at, at that time uh, was going to be two or three years later, you know. So I, 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 I just think that that was very difficult. And when Rupp went down and met with Harry in Harry's – hospital room and made peace with him that was that was really a genuine moment between the two one thing i failed to mention uh harry lancaster was also responsible for hiring joby hall and frank kersey uh that is correct in in 1973 i don't know that he's responsible as much as he happened to be the person in the position when dr singletray got here i think in 66 he was a president, but he also become AD of the two major sports. And nothing happened with those two major sports that didn't have his handprint all over it. Harry was the AD. Dr. Singletary made the decisions. Uh, when he hired uh, 
Joe B. Hall. That was at the time when there was a lot of uh, controversy on Coach Rupp being forced to retire. There was a mandatory retirement, state retirement age of 70 at the time, although there had been exceptions, and there wasn't one made for Coach Rupp. Two things about Coach Lancaster I want to share with you. I guess I was at Peddler's Mall some years ago going through some old uh, magazines, and there was uh, Kentucky sports magazines. So I took about five or six of them, just kind of picked them up every once in a while, looked at them. After a year, I picked up those. I looked at the uh, return of uh, the uh, mailing label on it. Guess what it said? Probably Harry Lancaster. It said Harry Lancaster, University of Kentucky Athletic Department. Yeah. Put in a plastic <laughs> bag, put a cardboard <laughs> bag behind it. The other thing I wanted to mention about Coach Lancaster, too, is that he's buried over at the Lexington Cemetery mm-hmm. behind Coach Rupp. Mm-hmm. Off on the, I believe, left-hand side behind Coach Rupp. A little trivia I like to throw out at people. Take it for what it's worth, but when the sun hits just right, Coach Rupp's tombstone cast a shadow over Harry Lancaster. I just kind of throw that out there. There's probably there's probably a little shot glass that's being passed back and forth, too. <laughs> <laughs> so, Oscar, let's talk about Cliff Hagen. 1951 national champion, played in the ABA, entered the University of Kentucky as athletic director under unique circumstances, and he left under unique circumstances as well. Well, I'll tell you what, Cliff was brought in early. He was brought on board I want to say around 1972 by Dr. Singletary from Central Bank. Uh, Cliff had been coach in the ABA, played in the ABA after his great days with the St. Louis Hawks where he won an NBA title. And at, at the time he was brought over in 72 was uh, three years before Harry quit. At the time, Harry had been having health issues, and they saw, so he was basically going to be an AD in waiting without the title. He was going to be the next man to move up. So they brought him over, trained him for two or three years. And so when Harry finally had to give it up uh, in 75, he, he later died in 85. Um, that was the way Clifton, he, he was the All-American boy. You know, everybody liked him. He was revered then as some of the Anthony Davises are today. And... Uh, in 1975, the uh, new Commonwealth Stadium was built, and they were well on their way to getting Rupp, even though the university really wasn't directly involved in building Rupp. That was the city of Lexington. So Cliff came in. Uh, he got to hire two coaches, um, Jerry Claiborne in 1982, after Fran Kersey left, and then he got to hire Eddie Sutton when Joe B. Hall quit. Cliff had went out when Eddie had went out. How bad did that tarnish Cliff Hagen's tenure here at Kentucky? Well, I, I think it didn't tarnish it as much as he probably thought at the time or he thinks even today. Cliff's a very sensitive person, hard as big as gold. He never did anything, in my opinion, to be – fired by UK. There was nothing ever linked to him that was anything was done wrong by NCAA rules or anything. That was all within the coaching staff. I think Dr. Roselle made a terrible mistake with that. It was an injustice to Cliff. It got to be a petty personality uh, situation. And I just didn't think that was one of Dr. Roselle's finest moments. But when a new president comes in and there's a little – a house clean that he thinks needs to be done, 
that's the type of a position that usually gets changed. And that was unfortunate. Speaking of Cliff, I'm going to, if I can take a little detour here real quick, I have to ask you about Cliff Hagen's steakhouse. Um, had 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 a uh, small chain of them. I think at its height, I think they had six, maybe, maybe seven. You had a couple in Lexington. You had one in Richmond. You had one in Hazard. You had one in Frankfurt. Uh, and I think there were one or two others. Uh, very, very successful. Really the best steaks in town and, and by far the best salad bar. And it's where everybody sort of congregated. Mm-hmm. And uh, But like steakhouses and restaurants all over the country named after celebrities, they sort of fade as a celebrity fades. Never got a chance to eat there. They were all gone by the time. I think the last remaining one was in Hazard, maybe. Yeah, I think it was, yes. So I never had the chance. But I've always wondered that and figured you'd be the person to ask about always, it. Always a great salad bar, and there's something I know about, and that's food. C.M. <laughs> Newton, he, he's brought on. But in the interim between Cliff Hagen and C.M. Newton, there was Judge Jim Parks. How did that come about? Well, that was because of the investigation by the NCAA. And you could see that this thing was going to be ongoing for a year or more. So they had to have somebody just to sit there and sign documents, cross the T's and dot the I's. And he was already working with the university and other things. So he just happened to be. And since you're a lawyer, you know, that that's the person, the kind of person. I don't think there was he ever made any really day-to-day decisions as far as hiring or firing any employees. It was just a caretaker till they could get the new ADN. And... Cliff, I mean, CM, by the way, was actually hired in January while he was still coaching at Vanderbilt. And he finished the season out and then came to Lexington, I want to say in late March or early April, to take the job. And CM had played basketball here. In the early 50s. Kind of a homecoming for him to come back to the UK. Yeah, he had a great reputation. He was one of these individuals that liked to be in uh, organizations. Uh, he liked to be in a coaches association. And so he got a pretty good reputation for being a straight shooter. And that's probably what got him the job here. He first was at Transylvania. Then he coached at Alabama, was successful there for several years, ended up going. I think he got tired because nobody would show up to watch him play in Alabama. And they had some great teams there. So he left there and went into administration with the Southeastern Conference for a little while. And then when the situation happened at Kentucky, they called him, and he decided to come up here. And he made a couple of big hires during his tenure. Yeah, he had, he had two hires right at, right off the outset. I mean, you knew you were going to be replacing Eddie Sutton as a coach, and he got the uh, hire done with Rick Patino, which we've discussed previously. But then right almost at the same time, all of a sudden, Jerry Claiborne says – He's had enough, and he's going to retire and enjoy some free time with his wife, Faye. And so he had to hire a football coach, and he went down and hired Bill Curry. And we know that story from our podcast. We sure do. We sure do. And then uh, after Curry left, he hired Hal Mummy. And then, Tubby, do do you think how critical were the fans of CM hiring Tubby after what Patino had did here? And especially after – Tubby winning the 98 national championship and kind of trailing off yeah. after that. There, there was no real, there was real, no real um, cr- criticism of hiring Tubby. That, that pretty much went off pretty, pretty quickly. Uh, Sim has always been an individual who's sort of been in the front 
on um, issues of integration from his days at Alabama and hiring African-Americans and minorities. And Tubby came with the endorsement of Rick Pitino, who was leaving out. So that, that was pretty much a no-brainer. But And they won the title the first year. And they were in the Elite Eight the second year and probably should have been in the Final Four. Uh, but it didn't happen. And then one year, next year, next year, and there was never any more Final Fours. Kentucky was never going to hire Tubby Smith. He was too successful as successful coaches go. His next to last year, he said, we got to get back to the Final Four. This is Tubby talking. And when he didn't, I think Tubby just sat down and said, you know, I've been here 10 years now. Uh, we had some near misses. He had that one great team, I think, in 03 when uh, Keith Bogans got, uh, was sick, and they ended up playing the lead eight, Dwayne Wade. Mm-hmm. And that took the air out of their sails. And I think he just said, you know, I've done as much as I can do. I'm not going to divide the fandom. I'm not going to create a hostile environment. I'm going to move on to another place. And that's when he went to Minnesota. You know, at the time, nobody would have ever saw that coming. You know, after he won the national championship. We're still expecting consistency from Tubby. Well, Still still good hire by C.M. Newton. Yeah, I, I, I just go back to that, though. I don't think Tubby ever felt comfortable in recruiting against the elites in the country because often when you're recruiting at that level you sort of gotta you certainly gotta get in the gray area i mean you gotta you gotta push the envelope tubby was never comfortable in that his most success was taking what we would call three-star players today and coaching them up to a four-star but if you don't have some of those really big time five stars, the odds are you're not going to be in a, cutting the nets down or being in a Final Four. Mm-hmm. And, and, that, and that's just my perception of it. I, I don't know. I think you look at Tubby's stays in Minnesota and Texas Tech and now going to Memphis, I think you can see a little bit of that. I do think he's going to be very successful at Memphis because he's in a town that appreciates college basketball as well as pro. If he can, They've got great talent in Memphis Avery. If he can keep those kids home there where he don't have to recruit against as an outsider, he's an insider there, I think he's going to be very successful. Let me go back to CM Newton hiring coaches. And we've heard this story about PJ Carlissimo. What do you think would have happened if CM Newton had hired PJ? That wasn't going to happen. But what if it did? That wasn't going to happen. What if it did? That ain't going. That wasn't <laughs> going to happen. You know, I, to this day, I think the intent there was, and I may be wrong. I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm just thinking off the top. I think the whole intent there was that PJ was a very good friend of CM's, and he helped him get a nice big raise because the year before, PJ takes Seton Hall to the Final Four. But everybody said, that's a flash in a pan. Well, you know, it sort of did turn out that way. It's a flash in a pan. But he wasn't going to get the job at Kentucky. CM Newton, obviously the greatest hire he'd made was Rick Pitino. What else could you tell us about his time here at Kentucky as an athletic director? Well, there there were a few things that he did here that uh, he's sort of been a lightning rod in some respects. The one thing I admired him for, I'm – think it was the 1998 football season when one of the football players they, they'd gone hunting on a, a Wednesday or Thursday morning down in Pulaski County and had a wreck and the driver was drinking 
and he immediately did away with the beer barrel and also the bourbon barrel with Indiana, the beer barrel with Tennessee. And he made a decision not to accept any alcohol advertising from that point forward involving athletics, radio, TV. I thought that was very bold of him. I'm glad he did. I know I'm, I, 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 might not, I might be in a minority on this, but he still was. If we expect our kids, our young kids, not to drink that are underage and then take money from the beer companies, that's being hypocritical. And he made that decision that was bold, and that took money out of their pocket. And this day and time, not many schools take money out of their pocket. They'll turn their head, take it, and keep on trucking. I thought that was very, very bold of him. Uh, there, there are some decisions that I think he was uh, maybe a little bit lax upon. Uh, you know, I, I th- I, I'm not so sure that he stayed with Curry as long as he did. The biggest mistake, I think, of all, not even, nothing even close, was uh, instigating the uh, rivalry between Kentucky and Louisville in football. I think that's been a loser for Kentucky from day one. I thought it was at the time they did it. Uh, we've now played, what, 23, 22 or 23 of them, and I think history has proved me right. Uh, they can say I'm a chicken, I don't want to play it, but I like to have a level playing field for my kids. If Kentucky was in the ACC, I would say play it. In the SEC with those eight league games, it's, it's buried Kentucky too many times. Uh, this year, you know, if things go well, at the very least, they're going to be 6-6. Six and six. They shouldn't have lost the game to Southern Miss, but they did. But to have that Louisville game there, too, that's tough, and Louisville's going to be a huge favorite. Now, I'm giving Louisville the credit. I'm not trying to downgrade Louisville. They're a top-five team this year. Arguably, I'd take them against about anybody, but perhaps maybe Alabama. But I just thought it was a terrible decision at the time for Kentucky still trying to build their program in the SEC. Let's talk about that. Were you in the minority of that decision being against playing Louisville? Probably was. Probably was. There were a few people that were, uh, since the beginning of time, the the football people, the ones that really should say we need as winnable schedules we could get non-conference should be the football people. And the majority of them has has been for playing Louisville, not doing away with the the series. There have been a couple of times in the last five or six years where it looked like they might decide not to play it, but it's going to be played. C.M. Newton retired, and then we bring in somebody who had been with the university for a while, Larry Ivey. Yeah, and that was pretty much C.M.'s handpicked successor. Uh, Larry, good friend, uh, done a lot of strong work here. Just happened to take over at the inappropriate time when everything was going on with how mummies football yeah, I was going to say, he kind of inherited a mess. And, uh, well, in a way, yes, but he was part of it. I mean, he was part of the group that brought it all in. And, again, you had the situation of a new president coming in. And any time that you're in a controversy with the NCAA and you got a new president, heads are going to roll. And he happened to be one of the first ones. Between Larry Ivey and Mitch Barnhart, a name that a lot of people forget as far as the scope of athletic directors was interim athletic director Terry Mobley. Yeah, uh, Terry has been a major fundraiser for the university for many, many years, just retired here recently, has been on the board of trustees much of that time. Uh, a giant among giants in um, 
the development program at Kentucky, and he was just the, happened to be the right guy. They wanted somebody who had some kind of athletic background that, you know, could talk it. And so he was a perfect man to slide in there until the new president hired a new AD. Mitch Barnhart, he comes in, whether you like him, you hate him. I mean, there, there's a lot of criticism over the decisions that he has made. But again, he's not in, he's in a tough position as far as being an athletic director. Well, he, he came in at both a good time and a bad time. Uh, he come at a good time because it couldn't get much worse. He came in at a bad time because it was a bad time. Uh, the president brought him in, had a lot of confidence in him, and said, hey, you're my man. He was going to have to hire a new coach uh, within a year. He inherited Guy Morse, who was the acting coach when Mummy got fired. Um, he'd got into the second uh, – at the middle of the first year – he got the interim removed the second year, the first year under Mitch. He runs off in seven and five. Could have been eight and four if that miracle touchdown hadn't been completed. Mm-hmm. And so he was up against it. I mean, he has a good year. He's a new AD. Do you, are you going to give an ex-assistant under the old regime a big new contract? He'd already gave him a contract extension in the middle of the season and doubled his salary. And then Morris gets an offer from Baylor, which is even sweeter than that. And then you get into he said, she said on who was asking for what. He chose to go on the way. So now he's got to hire a coach, and everybody that is on the list for it knows that you're going into three years probation. You're going to have a decent first year. Your second and third year are going to be horrible. So two, 2003 – 2004 and five going to be terrible. And it played out that way. Then in 2006, you got off of that start where you went to LSU. I mean, you know, you were hanging out there on the edge. And then they had that fantastic comeback. But, you know, I think he went through a lot of names. And then all of a sudden, one of the guys that was helping him select the coach was Rich Brooks. And, hey, you know, I'll take it. Uh, That was a big roll of dice. Maybe Mitch knew more about Rich Brooks than we did because they were from the same region at one time. And it turned out to be a very good hire, particularly at that time. We talk about good hires. There's some bad hires, too. Well, the, the coach in waiting with, with Joker Phyllis, we talked a little bit about that yep. before. Yeah, I, I, I don't know exactly how that was set in stone. Uh, you've heard me say many times I'm not a believer in coaching waiting unless it's a very short term, like two or three months. But it didn't work out well. And it didn't not only not work out well, it took the level of talent almost to the bottom basement. And then you hired Mark Stoops and, you know, we're sitting here right now. Um, by the time this is played, I don't know where we're getting this up this week or not, but it would be immediately before or after the Tennessee game. If we knew how that was come out, we could talk a lot better. We sure could. Billy Clyde Gillespie, not a good hire by Mitch Barnhart. Maybe at the time, but well, we know how it played out. Yeah, they, they were using a search firm to do the vetting on it, which did not earn their money. I would sue him for malpractice. <laughs> uh, but uh, he had just upset Louisville. And of all places at Rupp Arena, just weeks before he got the job. I, I must say this, if you go back and check all the tapes, all the newspaper clippings, all the TV footage, there was nothing but praise the day and the day after they hired him. Do you feel Mitch was misled? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, 
I would like to think that if he knew what he knew six months later, the day before he hired him, he wouldn't have hired him. But only Mitch can say that. Right. But then he recovered nicely by hiring John Calipari. Yeah. Uh, you know, that uh, that was the thing we've talked about before, too. They had opportunity to hire him when they hired Billy Klein. Yep. And they didn't. And But they didn't make the same mistake twice. Let's put it that way. When there's always criticism about an athletics director, I always like to fire this off at my friends or anybody who's critical. There's a reason why people like Mitch Barnhart's doing that job, and you're sitting here across the table talking to me right now. There's a reason why. Well, you know. Uh, you, you do what he tries to do and see if you yeah. can do it as good well, as he the, can. The thing is, what we say today is probably forgotten tomorrow. What he says today is etched in stone and hung on the wall to use against him the first time that he's caught not making the right decision. In my dealings with Mitch Barnhart, just casual conversations. Been very nice to me. He's always engaged in conversation. We've had great conversations about everything outside of athletics. He's always been great to me. But, man, I would not want his job whatsoever well it's a tough job it's a very rewarding job now if you're successful if you're successful even if you're not successful it's very rewarding financially you know you can spend a lot of time in hawaii on one of those checks well maybe we need to change our plan of course here oscar (laughs) (laughs) anything else you want to add on about these athletic directors i think think we've talked enough about the athletic directors and next time we talk we'll talk about the real heavyweights i can't wait the president's of the university. Oh, the president. I thought you were going to go with basketball coaches. Let's do presidents next time around. Okay, we'll do that then.